Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 529th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Megan Henning, Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton. And she will be talking to us about Hell Hath No Fury, Gender, Disability, the Body, and the Conceptualization of Suffering in Ancient Christian Deceptions of Hell. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Dr. Henning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Do you mind if we call you Megan? Please. Okay. Um, we call the first segment of the show Fadruk Danarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on the subject. So, can you start us off with some basic information about how hell became part of the early Christian thought uh, and how different of it was then than it is today? Sure. So, um, the way that hell enters early Christian thought is through the ideas that were prevalent at the time around um, apocalyptic thinking, as well as some of the myths of the broader Greek and Roman world. So um, these ideas come together from one Jewish apocalyptic text on the one side and Greek and Roman traditions about um, the descent to Hades on the other. And these traditions are all kind of popular enough by the time of the first century when Jesus and his disciples live and when the gospel authors are doing their writing at the end of the first century, that um, that they make it into um, the, a number of the books of the New Testament. In particular, we find the most information about um, an afterworld or afterlife place of torment in the, the gospel of Matthew. So it's in Matthew that we have the the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, and this is associated with Gehenna in Matthew. And then you also have um, Hades mentioned in Matthew. And um, and so people, I, I have argued that people are starting at this point to are, understand these ideas as interchangeable. They're starting to think about there being an afterlife space that was a place uh, of judgment and of punishment, and um, and Matthew is then becomes the most popular of the New Testament Gospels in the early church. And so these ideas start to take on a life of their own beyond um, just being a kind of abstract place of judgment or punishment that gets mentioned in Matthew. It becomes um, much more three-dimensional in second century texts. And so we have early Christian apocalypses, like the Apocalypse of Peter, which is a second century text that describes uh, afterlife place, uh, 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 a place of eschatological judgment or um, <clears throat> end of time judgment and punishment that is um, extremely graphic and that draws upon a lot of the judicial and carceral technology of the day. So the punishments that were part of Roman civil life in, um, in everyday life become a part of the way that these early Christian authors imagine 
afterlife places of punishment. And it's not just in an apocalyptic text like the Apocalypse of Peer. We also have early Christian thinkers um, like Tertullian and Augustine talking about how these places of punishment were um, places where the body would actually be tortured. And they also talk about describing them in ways that match punitive systems that, that were on earth. So um, especially the punishments that were reserved for the lowest stratum of society, um, the enslaved or um, non-elite folks could be um, sentenced to the mines, which was a very brutal form of punishment. And it was an underground place of, of punishment. It was a place that was smelly and had extreme temperatures. And, um, and that is part of how the punitive imagination of these afterlife spaces in, in early Christian depictions of hell get imagined. Um, and, and explicitly so, um, right? So we have someone like um, Tertullian talking about why it's really important for afterlife bodies to have um, teeth, because we know that some of the punishments particularly pertain to chattering teeth, which mirrors the extreme cold of underground mines or prisons that would um, work kind of forced work punishments on earth that would be extremely cold, for example. All right, so um, how many centuries, would you say, um, does this concept kind of develop? Because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written anywhere from 90 to 160 years after the death of Christ. And as you've said, this is kind of an idea that's going in motion. Uh, am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, assessment? yeah so... Um, Scholarly estimates about when the Gospels are written is, yeah, sometime between 60 and 90 CE. And then um, and then the, I was just talking about a number of texts that were written between 100 and 200 CE. But then um, after the, the Apocalypse of Peter is written, the texts that I study are apocalyptic tours of hell that are based off of, sometimes explicitly, sometimes indirectly, off of that first, second century tour of hell. And those texts range in date from the second century CE all the way through the medieval period. They were um, extremely popular in late antiquity and in the early medieval period. The Apocalypse of Paul is the text that Dante reads before he sits down to write his Inferno. And he says, I just read the vision of some Paul. Um, he's talking about the Apocalypse of Paul there. So um, that means that this imagination of Paul of hell as a kind of prison, as a, a place that particularly uses bodies to bring home a message, is mediated to our present-day culture um, through these late antique and early medieval texts and through someone like Dante, who then becomes a kind of classical text that everybody reads um, in the West. So... Um, these texts have a huge influence on today's culture because of the, the their popularity over a long period of history, and then um, their influence on particular strands of Christian literature. 
Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show that is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Megan Henning, Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton, and we're talking about Hell Hath No Fury, gender, disability, the body, and the conceptualization of suffering in ancient Christian depictions of hell. Our history buffs to today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. Brett, since you are married to a pastor, why don't you start us off with the concepts of hell? <laughs> Oh, I suppose I can. <laughs> so, Megan, you talk about um, some of the inspiration, apparently, for these ideas of punishment coming from actual uh, punishments used by uh, the Romans during the time period. Do we see a lot of back-and-forth influence um, between... Christians and conceptions of hell? Do we see, for example, um, either the church uh, fathers and their writings using punishments that were found in the secular world for a particular crime for a similar sin, or later on, uh, do we see the church or Christian rulers um, getting the ball rolling a little early? and giving people a foretaste of what they could expect if they don't mend their ways? Yeah, so um, depending on your perspective, I wish I had better news here. So what I'm going to say is perhaps troubling for, for folks that really are um, committed to to a, a faith tradition. Um, so the Christian authors of these texts are absolutely getting ideas from the broader civic world and also making them more intense and excruciating and amplifying them. And then they are also, when Christians um, have power after the rise of Constantine, crafting a Christian law code that is then influenced by those more intense judicial norms from their hell texts. So um, we know that, that Christians are both, are drawing these punishments from the broader Roman world, not just because of the way that they mirror those punishments, like I was talking about, for example, with the underground mind. Um, and Yulia Hilner has a great book on um, penance and punishment in the ancient world that was really helpful for me as I was writing this. But I also noticed that the 
um, early church thinkers are explicitly articulating this when they're trying to explain to audiences the rationale of an afterlife space. So Augustine, for example, doesn't like the early Christian apocalypses and the way that they describe hell, um, but not for the reasons that you might expect. He says in City of God that he's talking about um, about hell and some of these texts where there, in, in many of these texts, there is some kind of mercy for the damned. And the, the figure who is touring hell is begging for mercy for the damned, and usually the damned are given like a day or a week off, um, usually on Sunday or on Easter Sunday um, or Easter week. And then in some of the texts, um, particularly the ones that involve Mary, Mary is actually able to um, win respite for all of the damned forever, which is why the Marian apocalypse has become extremely popular in Eastern Christianity. Um, if you didn't know, the Orthodox tradition does not have an idea of consistent eternal conscious torment like that. that hell has already been harrowed for those traditions. So, um, so Augustine sees this mercy for the damned in these texts and says, this doesn't make any sense. Um, this rhetoric is really persuasive for this idea is really persuasive for getting people to behave ethically. We know this from looking at, for example, Cicero's explanation on how the laws work. And so if there's a way out from the punishment, people won't behave ethically. This is not a just, this is, this is not a good enough system of justice because why wouldn't the divine system of justice be as severe as the earthly system of justice? And so, um, Augustine is explicitly comparing hell's punishments and hell's system of justice and an eternal system of justice to an earthly one. And that's why he rejects some of these texts. And then on the other hand, after the rise of Constantine, um, we have the Theodosian Code, which has many punishments that are similar to the punishments of the Tours of Hell that did not exist before um, in the, in the law codes before that. So um, Christians both are influenced by the broader Roman ideas of criminal justice, and then they identify it through these tours of hell, and then they write it back into their laws. Um, and so we might have hoped that after the rise of Constantine that Christians would have, like, a different approach to the law, and, and instead what we see is that they actually intensify it and make it more violent. Okay. Rick. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just a happy-go-lucky place to start, uh, yeah. I feel like I'm just sitting with Mr. <laughs> Chuckles here. Uh, <laughs> Megan, uh, just, uh, just a categorical, foundational question. Why make hell so nasty? What is it because life is nasty, and if you do what the ideology tells you to do, then uh, you live a Christian life, you'll go to a place that's not like Earth? Well, one of the ways into this, que I have the exact same question, and that's, that's how a sunny person like me ends up in hell. So, <laughs> um, and I th so I think it's a great question, and the way, my way into that question has been through rhetoric. So my first book was about hell as rhetoric, and I think that if you look at visual rhetoric traditions from antiquity, the reason that hell is so nasty is because that is exactly what you suggested. That is how you pull at people's emotions, and pulling at people's emotions is how visual rhetoric can persuade them to behave in particular ways, according to the ancient rhetorical handbook. So you use this visual rhetoric 
and you use images that they would be familiar with from their everyday life that would call up emotions in their mind. And it would get them to respond in a particular visceral way that would incline them to change their behavior based on the the vivid images of violence that are in these texts, Um, which is exactly so Augustine is consistent with that when he's like, I don't think this is going to work because it's not extreme enough. Right. So it gives us a kind of window into why. Right. Why do this? Because you want people to behave in a particular way. So one of the things I'm telling my students all the time is that um, the way in which these texts get used in the contemporary world, which is from people inside the tradition to try to persuade people outside the tradition to join the tradition, that's not what's going on in antiquity. These are texts by insiders for other insiders about changing your behaviors and your ethical norms and getting people to live according to the in the earliest of the text, to the virtues of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so care for the other, care for the marginalized in your community. Those are some of the sins that come up most frequently in these texts. Um, and so it's, it's really counterintuitive to us that you would have these like violent images that are used to get people to behave kindly. <laughs> but, but that is what is going on in these texts. Okay, so let's throw the other concept with it, and I'm going to, because I'm the modern historian of the crowd here. Um, So then with this hell hath no fury, um, Mm -hmm. there's also redemption and forgiveness. So um, in hearing this discussion as, as you're saying it, that they're creating a way that it's to such an extreme that if you receive redemption and have faith you get rewarded and while hearing this this sounds very much like um several of the evangelicals that you hear in today's world do you think that their pattern is very much modeled after this well the main place that they diverge is that in these texts there's not very much of a description of heaven so heaven is there but really just see the saints there, and it's sort of boring, okay. right? Because they think the founding is something. Again, these are texts for people who are already Christians, and it's about getting them to behave in a particular way. And um, and so I think the assumption is that their eschatological fate is already kind of a foregone conclusion, and this is about persuading them to behave a particular way. Um, while they're on earth. The thing that is really stunning to me about the way that this the heaven and hell stuff gets used in contemporary evangelicalism today is that um, most of these texts actually focus on behavior and not confessional identity, right? So in the book of Revelation, for example, the people who go into the lake of fire are condemned there because of their deeds, by what they have done. It doesn't have, it doesn't have to do with their allegiance necessarily. Um, And that's something that gets kind of glossed over um, in the contemporary world because the, the the end that is being used is, is, or the hopeful goal of the people using these images is different. Um, It it is, it today is about um, conversion and that conversion is the way that you get to heaven. But even the texts that are used in those conversations um, like John 3.16, for example, aren't exactly about that. 
um, that that is actually drawing on a ancient Jewish life and death contrast. That there, the way of life is to is to follow the path of wisdom, and the the way of death is to follow the way of folly. Um, and that text is really identifying the person of Jesus with. And he wrote that text because everybody wanted to see it at football games. I know why he did that. Exactly. Right? What will people put on posters in the 20th century, in the 21st century, if not that? Um, That's the obvious conclusion. Um, All right, Brett, if your wife was here, she'd be smiling from ear to ear. Brett, yours. So... You talked about these conceptions of hell being used as kind of a scared straight program. How does that interplay with the tradition within the early church to, for a lot of people to delay baptism till they're on their deathbed? Is there a link between those two? Um, not necessarily. I think... Um that you have a huge range of ideas in early Christianity. It's, they're related in the sense that there are a lot of people that have a lot of different ideas in early Christianity about what happens after we die and what happens um, and how that is related to what happens on earth, both theologically and practically. And so um, I think that people are under the impression that there is um, a tremendous amount of hom- homogeneity in early Christian thinking. And um, what I have learned from spending so much time in hell is that um, people imagine the afterlife for a range of different reasons. And even if they're using a trope, like many of my texts are building off of each other and using some of the same stock images or stock punishments, they're still always tweaking it and reimagining it for their own context. So, that's one of the things that's really stunning is that in our in my own lifetime and in the recent history in the United States that there's actually been a fair amount of kind of static idea <laughs> idea building around the afterlife that hasn't really changed for the context or the time okay. um, and that has been rather consistent. Okay. Rick. I'm uh, distracted. I'm looking for my Bible. Uh, <laughs> you gave up on that a long time ago, Rick. You're not going to find it. No, I'd rather lead in hell than follow in heaven. So, uh, Now, was, was this, I mean, you're looking at the intellectual and the literary uh, comments of people in in the past writing about or purporting to present images of hell. They, were were these images? Uh, I guess it's it's the the uh, scared straight stuff that that Brett brought up. Was this effective in modifying behavior? Uh, because it almost seems like a a crapshoot that uh, depending on what the authority said, you know, you were or weren't doing or did or didn't do, uh, you're going to hell as opposed to heaven. Was it effective? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not totally sure. I can tell you that John Chrysostom thought it was. He actually says, "I wish I could always be preaching about hell because it's so useful." Um, and he talks <laughs> in particular about how it's like particularly useful for adolescent boys. So, like, there is definitely there's definitely a tradition in antiquity that suggests that at least some people thought it was effective. 
But on the other hand, um, you know, we know that at least in the contemporary world, it it does not appear to be any more effective. And in fact, in many cases, it's more harmful. Um, and that could be a mismatch of our context, but it could also be the case, um, broadly speaking, that these punitive ideas are not only violent in their content, but also violent in their application. Okay. It is customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Megan, why do you think knowing about how ancient Christians depicted hell is relevant in today's world and don't try to save Rick with it so you can leave that answer out. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important for today's world um, because what we see in antiquity is a, a violent system of punishment that is not only depicting things according to the the criminal justice norms of the ancient world, but also um, a gendered um, hierarchy and a, a hierarchy that particularly stigmatized the disabled in antiquity. And I think that if we study it, we can avoid bringing that hell to earth today in our own world. Okay, Rick, since you can't be saved, what do you think? Well, I'm just thinking about my adolescence. I'm doomed. I just thought I know I'm doomed. Uh, I think it's interesting because we need to know from whence some of our 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 uh, our uh, cultural elements come from. You know, we take this on faith. Uh, I, I know some on the dais are Catholics, and you're all going to heaven. I know that from what Catholicism say. But I I think it's very important to know from where some of these ideas. Uh, have come from. Okay, Brett. <laughs> Much like Rick, um, I think that it's important to know kind of the lineage of some of our intellectual traditions. I just uh, finished teaching early Christianity to some of my junior high students, and the fact mm-hmm. that there were hundreds of texts that didn't make the cut. Uh, was certainly a revelation to some of them. And the idea that, you know, early Christians did not, were not handed the same Bible that we were uh, right after uh, Pentecost. And it took a while to sort out these ideas, uh, was rocking their world a little. And I, I agree with that. I think it's a value point. Um, I'm, we've all been raised in institution, religious institutions, and you just get this idea that the, the patterns were already made and laid and it was done. And it was definitely a lot of um, discussion, trial and error, and disagreement over the centuries. Um, we'll come back and wrap things up, so please stay tuned to ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. 
ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 529th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guests, Dr. Megan Henning, Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton, who talked with us about Hell Hath No Fury, Gender, disability, the body, and the conceptualization of suffering in ancient Christian depictions of hell. The history bus for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala. Peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>